Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals. CBC run a wide range of courses covering a variety of topics and genres. If you're interested in bringing your true stories to the page, why not join their six-week online writing a memoir course with exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from best-selling author Kathy Rensenbrink. By the end of the course, you'll have written at least the first 3,000 words of your memoir and developed a plan for the rest of the book. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert non-fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of writing a memoir or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the travel writer and novelist Colin Thubron. We spoke to Colin about his travel writing exploring Russia, China and Central Asia, about his latest book on the Amur River and about his parallel career as a fiction writer. We produced this episode in collaboration with the London edition of the Jaipur Literature Festival. It's a great listen and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome Colin to Always Take Notes. It's brilliant to have you on the show. Could we start with your latest book, The Amur River? Where did the idea of looking at this river and the confrontation of two great powers come from? Well, I suppose most of my working life has been spent in Russia, China, Central Asia, this area. And um, it seemed natural to be writing about the enormous river that flows between them. It's the 10th longest river in the world, although so little known in the West. But above all, it's for over a thousand miles, it's the border between Russia and China. And um, this is where these two great sort of empires, if you like, meet their their frontier, their end in one another. And it seemed a very natural thing to me to be um, at last writing about them, their their mutual confrontation. And of course, a river is always um, enticing to, to, to write about because it is, to put it rather crudely, a metaphor for life in as much as it, um, it has its source, obscure source somewhere, flows through all, all sorts of changes and vicissitudes and ends in the great, um, in the great ocean. Could you tell us a bit about the, the journey itself? Um, 3,000 miles, how did you go about planning the route? And um, I saw in, in uh, you know, you had kind of local guides or, or people who were helping you when you were on the ground. Tell us a bit about the, the actual travel portion of the project. Well, the travel, um, I only had one or two guides by chance, really, except to begin with. Um, the, this river, um, which is so important to both Russia and China, um, uh, was uh, the subject of a convention that the two powers held between them at one time, some time ago, trying to decide where the furthest source of the river lay. Then they found to their chagrin that it was in neither country, but in the mountains of northeast Mongolia. And that's where the river Amur rises, and where it's rather difficult to, um, to, to find because it's a hugely protected area 
it's 5,000 square miles of Mongolia against the Russian border, which is forbidden to travelers or to anybody at all, it's not inhabited. So it took a long time for me to find an agent and some horsemen um, and to get permission to go. So I started the river there, if you can imagine Mongolia way off um, to the to the west of the Pacific. And then the river falls, uh, follows an enormous loop um, and goes uh, quickly into South Siberia, Russian South Siberia, meets the Chinese border at the top of that loop and takes another great um, southeastward trajectory um, before leaving the Chinese border after the, another thousand miles and flowing north for another 600 miles um, to the Pacific. So I went originally with guides, I had to go um, finding um, with Mongolian horsemen um, for the first two weeks to find the source of the river. And then really I, I, was, um, I was the subject of just chance. Um, after that, I, um, I just hitchhiked or teamed up with anybody who seemed interested. And sometimes I was alone, much of the time I was alone. And other times I fell in with particularly with friendly Russians. Um, it was a long time before the river really became navigable and I could take a boat. But I eventually did that too, then the Trans-Siberian Railway, and finally mainly by boat and that's those last miles to the Pacific. But it was all very random, you know, um, it was impossible to organize such a journey in advance. You just have to be as flexible as you can and um, trust to luck. I saw a commenter on a um, article uh, about your book saying that he always has a map to hand and a dictionary when he's reading your books, um, which I thought was quite <laughs> quite a nice approach. Can you tell us about some of the challenges along the way? Much has been written about your uh, broken ribs. Oh, well, the challenges were worst at the beginning because um, we were entering this forbidden area um, with nine pack horses, one of which wasn't properly broken and panicked the others. And there had been heavy monsoons that year and we were going to a lot of marshland. In fact, the rangers at the park entrance um, um, refused any responsibility for us. We had to sign documents absolving them of any responsibility. And then we went and it did get increasingly heavy and marshy. The horses panicked. My own horse fell several times and eventually rolled over. Um, and uh, I emerged with a, a broken ankle and two broken ribs. But I was miles from anywhere there, where there could be any help. And so I just carried on persuading myself that the ankle was only sprained and the ribs were only bruised while knowing really that they weren't. Um, but slowly these things got better as the weeks went on. And, and it was pretty miserable to start with, but it, but it, it, it got better. That was the worst um, afterwards. Really, the hazards came through the police, particularly the Russian police that didn't quite know what this old man was doing, who by that time had a bad limp, was speaking bad Russian. They couldn't quite imagine what I was up to. So I was grilled by the police, particularly on one uh, occasion, and they threatened to send me back to the local provincial capital and then back to London. But um, I got over that for reasons I'm still not sure um, why they eventually released me. But uh, those were the main hazards. It was police supervision and um, Mongolian horses. And is the, the horse still widely used as a form of transport in that region? Or did you seek it out particularly yourself? No, um, it was impossible to go any other way, quite honestly. You had to go, as in many parts of Mongolia, 
a few roads. Um, but most of Mongolia is stepland. It's this wonderful glaze with wildflowers in the spring, very beautiful, and right through to the autumn, in fact. And so it's hard, hard land under your feet or hooves. But where I was was a mountainous area, which is a sacred to Genghis Khan, who is the great Mongol hero, and where he's buried and was born. And it's, uh, it's quite secluded mountain. And what's your approach in general to packing for these trips? I've read that you're sort of fastidious about packing light, no mobile phone, maps, a compass, and your most valued possession is your notebooks. Is that right? That's pretty well right. Um, I, I lay out everything I think I'm going to need before a journey like this. And then I ask myself, do I really want that? And the answer is very often no. So it can be reduced to quite a light backpack in the end. Um, and it's maddening to have something that is weighing on you for months of traveling, um, something that you don't really need. So I'm very ascetic about what I take. Uh, yes, notebooks are vital because I, um, I have to write down um, enormous amounts. I don't like it really because it makes for a rather self-conscious journey. But um, my memory is not particularly good. And if I didn't write down the detail of what happens, what a conversation might be like, or the texture of some rock in a landscape, um, I would lose it all. I wouldn't have the memory for it. And it's often the detail that I think gives life to a description. So all that has to go down in the notebooks. So they're precious. As for the compass, well, <laughs> the compass, I have a very strong sense of direction, but it's nearly always wrong. So I like to fall back on a compass if I have to. And how significant was your grasp of Russian and grasp of Chinese in, in making the journey possible? It was vital, honestly, the, the Russian in particular. It's not, you know, people say, oh, you must be fluent in Russian. I'm not really, but I have a sort of conversational Russian learned over many years. And so um, I was able to make my way. You couldn't really do it without the language because people in this area don't speak English or very few of them. As for Mandarin Chinese, I could speak that, but that's 40 years ago. And I really haven't practiced it since. And although I have some, um, I relied more, I think, on, on a Mandarin dictionary. And um, you know, I was going along for much of the time with a, with a friend, a, a Chinese friend that um, spoke very clear Mandarin. And we developed a rather horrible language between us because he insisted on trying Russian. And I insisted on practicing my half-forgotten Mandarin. And we must have sounded terrible together because he, um, he couldn't. Uh, it's very hard for Chinese to duplicate the Russian consonants, which are sort of very clustered. And he would replace these with a sort of despairing meow sound after a bit. And um, I was taking these laborious side roads to say what I want in Mandarin. And um, we sounded perfectly awful, I'm sure, but nobody could understand what we were saying except ourselves. So we were fairly safe. Um, you've spoken about the importance of speaking to characters in your book in their context. What are your methods for getting your subjects to sort of open up to you and trust you? Well, that's a, a difficult question because it so much depends on the individual person and how you meet them. Um, with Russians, I've never found it very hard because Russians are a bit very warm. Um, once you have their friendship, once you're in their house, um, their kitchen probably, um, traditionally they're very uh, friendly and open. Um, and uh, it's been less of a problem with the Russians than the Chinese. The Chinese are more 
preserved, I think, by these awful um, cultural cliches I find myself using, but in general, it is harder to talk with any intimacy to the Chinese, or has been for me, and it needs um, quite a, a longish friendship or, or longer time than the greater immediacy of Russians. So um, it's always open to chance, you know, people keep saying to me, which is very flattering, you have one good conversation after another in your book, but of course I don't. Um, nine out of 10 conversations fall by the wayside, either because of my poor Mandarin in many cases, um, or just because they're not, they don't strike me as especially interesting, not enough to record. And so for every one conversation, at least 10 um, that are, are not recorded. It's, um, it, with the Chinese, I found it was often good to share, if you like, share um, things that are wrong, share shame, if you like. If I realized that one man was say unhappy in his marriage, I might say, well, you know, I'm not having a good time with my girlfriend or something like that. It sounds rather awful, but that's just a sort of example of giving people license to talk about things that they wouldn't normally talk about because they're common human um, uh, problems, perhaps. What is your approach to assessing risk and hazard when you're traveling? In particular, you, given that you deliberately cut yourself off from communications, that you don't tend to take a phone and, and things like that, how do you go about determining whether it's worth going somewhere or you know the, the dangers that you're facing? Well, so instinct, really. I mean, obviously, I do a lot of research beforehand, and you don't go to um, the middle of Chernobyl or something. Um, I usually find that the rumors of risk and danger are exaggerated. Um, you often find on the road that people will say, oh, you mustn't go there. People are, are ugly there. You'll be robbed or murdered or something. You almost always find that that's not so. And you arrive at the next place and they wonder how on earth you survived the one you've just come from. Um, it, it, it's quite common in, in, in certain societies anyway, for them to denigrate maybe in all um, other places than their own. So in general, I suppose I've trusted to luck. Uh, there are things that you can't really prepare for um, in the possibility of being robbed, for instance. I usually have dollars, which are still the currency of choice, so secreted in different parts of my luggage or, or person. Um, so I guard against that sort of robbery. Other things you, you can't do anything about. Um, there's one thing, one curious thing about dangers and general risks is that you, if you're writing about them, you accept them more readily than if you're just going for holiday for pleasure. Uh, you know, if they're part of the personality of the country, they're part of where you are and to avoid them um, seems sort of wrong. It's almost as if there are two of you going. It's a bit like, it sounds unromantic, but it's like a journalist looking for copy. And, um, and the journalist, as it were, the, the writer is sitting on the traveler's shoulder um, watching. And the traveler may be having a bad time and being mugged or beaten up or something, but the, the writer, the traveler, the writer is sitting on his shoulder is saying, oh, this is good copy, we can use this. And in fact, there's always, um, people always like to know about disasters. What, um, what struck most people about this recent book on the Amur River um, was my being thrown from a horse and 
um, breaking bones. And people love that. <laughs> not sure whether that's heartening about readers or not. Um, you've described various run-ins with the police over the course of your career. Um, have there been any times that you felt genuinely in, in danger? Um, eh, not, um, not severely. I've never thought I was about to die anywhere. Um, I did feel when I was traveling in Russia in the Soviet period, in the Brezhnev period, and was being followed by the KGB for quite a few days, I began to think perhaps they're really going to um, uh, give me an impossibly hard time at some stage, probably when I reach the border, and that I might be imprisoned for some, for some reason. Um, I don't think, I, I have been attacked from time to time, but usually um, not very aggressively. Um, when I was in the earlier part of my career in, in, um, in Palestine, I found Palestinian refugees, um, assuming perhaps I was Israeli, um, did attack me, but not um, in both times, not with any great consequence or um, and not with weapons, just physically. I, I can't remember, almost every journey has some, some such incident in it, but uh, nothing that's made me feel I was on the point of death. Could we fall back now to the, the start of your career and your initial interest in both writing and, and travel? I was reading that when you were um, a child, having this experience of your father being a, an attache in, in the US and of, of crossing, crossing the channel, you said flying by stratocruiser and being airsick. You know, how, did, how do you think those experiences instilled this interest in, in travel? And, and where did your interest in, in the literary world spark from originally? I can't be sure, but as you say, when I was young, I was seven or eight, my father was military attaché in Canada, but I was sent back to school in England and holidays in Canada or the States. And so I was sent on these sort of transatlantic crossings, um, which uh, made, I mean, for a child shortly after the Second World War had finished, um, it was tremendously exciting. Here was this boring place called school, boarding school, Ascot, gorse bushes, um, and suddenly this would all finish, that sort of constriction. And I tried to go to my parents 3,000 miles away in Canada with its enormous lakes and the excitement of a completely different world, a much more um, plenteous world too. The shops amazed me, the restaurants amazed me. And I think it gave me the idea that abroad was exciting. Um, abroad was wonderful, home was boring. And I, I have a feeling, I can't be sure, that that was instilled in me from that time a sense of wonder um, of what might be somewhere over the water rather than sitting back in England. And that, that as for the literary um, element, again, I, I can't really be sure. I was just better at English than I was at maths at school. I wrote a lot of bad poetry. My mother was a descendant of John Dryden. Her maiden name was Dryden. And that seemed to make it a bit special, um, I think, School children always want or relish something that's a bit special about them that makes them seem different. And I thought being descendant of John Dryden was something wonderful. I mean, I'm nothing like him, unfortunately, probably in, in writing. He has a very acute critical intelligence and satire. Um, I'm not like that at all. So I don't think anything's inherited. Um, but he did, um, my mother, I think, fostered in me um, the feeling that to be a poet or a writer would be something wonderful. 
And am I right in thinking that a, a family holiday to the Middle East when you're in your late teens as well was particularly instructive in terms of the path that you wanted to take? Yes. In, uh, I think it was 1961, um, I did a long journey with my parents. Um, my sister had been killed a couple of years before, and we became very close with my parents. And I think um, almost to comfort me, um, that we all went to on a long caravan journey down to Egypt through Lebanon and Turkey and Syria. And it was on that journey, I think, that I first encountered what began to fascinate me, which was the inland cities of Syria, places like Aleppo and Damascus. Many of my sort of Englishmen got fascinated with the Bedouin Arabs, you know, the T. Lawrence, Wilfred Thesser, Jamel. Um, but I loved always the the urban, the mystery of the urban cities uh, of Syria. And um, I didn't even know what a mosque was hardly, or let alone a madrasa. But um, the whole culture fascinated me. Um, and it was a challenge. I always liked the idea that there's something out there that I don't understand, that I don't know, which makes my books, I think, less a, less a sort of bar. Um, account of a, of a culture or a journey and more of an exploration, a discovery. And that's what I felt about the Arab world. I mean, the near Eastern Arab world, near Western Arab world, I should say, uh, of um, Syria, Lebanon, um, Iraq, Turkey. Uh, these lands all, all came to fascinate me. But in particular, um, there's some um, cities like Damascus which um, filled me with intense curiosity and wonder. I read that your sister's death was in a, in a skiing accident. And I was wondering, do you think in, in some of your early exploration with writing, that was a, a tragedy that you were trying to address or, or trying to come to terms with? Or was the, the relationship between her, her passing and, and your, your writing more, more complicated than that? Or was there not one at all? I don't think I was kind of trying to address it. Hmm. Um, although... I have written about religion in novels mainly, and even in some travel books, like one on Jerusalem, um, addressed the different faiths um, simply by talking by to adherents of them. Um, the, the, it's very hard to answer that or the effect that it had on me. Um, it, it's a, it, it, I know too little, I think, about myself to be sure. Although it may have, uh, it may have pushed me into becoming agnostic um, rather than Christian. What informed your decision to go into publishing when you were starting out in your early career? I didn't know what else to do with myself. I think um, I wanted to be close to books. I love books and reading and and um, so on. And um, it seemed a natural, uh, a very natural profession for me. And I was waiting to become a writer. I wanted to be a writer. I never thought of publishing as, a, as a, an end in itself. Although it's been very useful to have had an experience. Some authors spend most of their time complaining about their publishers. And so it's rather um, good, actually, to have some understanding of the, uh, of the profession. Could we talk now about uh, Mirror to Damascus in, in 1967 and how that book, your first book, came about and we love uh, on the podcast to really get into the intricacies of how people particularly at the start of their careers got an agent got representation got a publishing deal I mean tell us how how that became what it became well 
again, I think I was lucky. Um, I had worked in publishing. You would have expected me to submit the book I eventually wrote to the publisher I'd worked with. I didn't want to do that. It seemed like some sort of cheating. Um, but I'd long been fascinated, as I said, by, by Damascus. And I did a lot of research on it and uh, finished my publishing job, which by then, that time was in the States, actually. I joined the, the Macmillan Company in New York. And I went to Damascus. Um, I think, for one thing, um, I didn't feel that I wanted to write about a European country. It seemed not strange enough or challenging enough to me, the European countries that I immediately came to mind. Um, whereas Damascus, although um, in a way exotic, um, it, it was sufficiently part of the Western world for me to have some grip on. So it had a it was comforting in that sense, in that, you know, it, it hinged on, you know, the ancient Greeks and Romans, the Crusaders, um, all these things made it a part of the Mediterranean a little bit. And that was, I think, reassuring for my research. I didn't feel I was launching out, say, as I later did to China or something. I didn't have the confidence for that. But I did have the, the excitement and the confidence for some confidence, at least, for writing about a city that impinged on the Eastern Mediterranean. So I went, I stayed with an Arab family on the street called Strait. Um, you could live very cheaply there. I think I paid them two shillings and sixpence in rent each week. And um, you could live on almost nothing. So I stayed as long as I wished and came back. And um, I had a, is a family friend, uh, really, uh, called Charles Pick, who was then the managing director of Heinemann. And he said to me, well, you know, of course I'll advise you, um, but we don't publish travel books really. He covered himself that way. And I gave him my eventual manuscript and he published it. And I was very lucky because he was my sort of father figure for books that came thereafter. He always had faith in me. And, uh, and that's how I started on, with very little money. But then I had no expenses. I wasn't married, I had no children. Um, and I could exist. Then and now, how does research fit into it? Do you do it before you embark on the trip or do you do a bit and then supplement the rest later? How does it fit together for you? Um, the important research is always beforehand. Um, after, it, it somehow seems to be the, for me, the experience that I bring to the journey that matters, not what I learn afterwards. It's what I have in my head while I'm traveling that, that explains my, or helps to explain my own reactions and so on. And afterwards, when I come back, obviously I check facts and so on, but I don't really do any more research. But the research is long. Um, it can be at least a, a year and a half before going on a journey. And then it takes well over a year to write, maybe another year and a half to write it. And in, in between is this rather unheroic period of the actual traveling, which is the vital thing, which may be just six months, perhaps. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I really hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the travel writer and novelist Colin Thubron. It's time for the next installment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're hearing from the novelist and the winner of the 2022 Women's Prize for Fiction, 
Ruth Ozeki. And she's going to tell us about something she wished she'd known at the start of her career and a time she failed. Don't be afraid of it. You know, just, you know, at the risk of sounding like an Adidas commercial, you know, just just do it. Um, I think my I wanted to be a writer so badly and that got in the way of my writing. Um, So I think that if, you know, if somebody had encouraged me to just sort of let go of the fear part of it somehow and um, and plunge into it, that would have gotten me started a lot earlier. Um, a time when I failed in my writing career, I guess this is related to the first piece of advice. There was a period after my parents died when I was really struggling with writer's block. And I decided to take time off and pursue something else. I, I, that was when I got very involved in Buddhism. So I think, again, it was just, you know, the sort of the patience that, uh, you know, that I learned from that was, was really helpful. Um, and eventually I came back to it. That was Ruth Ozeki. And if you were interested in what Ruth had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Colin Thibron. There's this long and storied tradition of, of English travel writing in the 20th century, people like Robert Byron, Patrick Lee Fermor, Bruce Chatwin. When, when you were starting out, were you conscious of that canon and how did you feel you related to it? And how, how has your feeling about that, that canon and that tradition evolved over your career? First, um, was interested in uh, the works of Patrick Lee Fermor, Fred Stark, um, and the, those two, and uh, James Marlis. He was James then, um, those three. And um, they, they didn't seem particularly to form a canon to me exactly. Um, and travel writing wasn't really sort of established as a literary genre in itself, um, uh, quite as much then as it became in the late 70s, 80s, where there, it, it almost as if publishers had discovered it as a literary genre of some sort of respectability or stature. People like, indeed, um, Bruce Chatwin, Paul Theroux, Jonathan Rabin, Redmond Hamlet. And I was, again, you know, I suppose I joined them in, in the 80s. And, and um, now, of course, they're looked at askance, that whole, um, that whole tradition of the lone Western traveler going off with superior knowledge and probably um, a privileged education um, to look at countries that are much poorer. It seems like Edward, since Ed, you know, Edward Said and, um, and Mary Louise Pratt, they're, they're strong critics of this sort of traveling in which somebody who has power, I suppose you would say knowledge is power, and you're traveling to people that don't have that power if you're traveling in poor countries, as I was um, largely or a great deal poorer than my own. And so it seems an act of presumption and injustice to some people that you are pronouncing, if you like, on these countries from your neo-colonialist perspective. And I can see the logic of that. Though I think for a 
practicing travel writer. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. You can travel, not certainly not for any um, other purpose than for understanding, um, even possibly for out of respect and uh, a, a desire to, to learn from another culture rather than imposing your own. It's a, it's a very difficult balance, but I think if we regard all, um, all traveling of this kind as an exercise of, in some way of power, then we wouldn't travel at all. You know, there would be no effort to meet, to communicate, to understand, um, because we'd be banned by the inequality of our status. And I think that that would quite obviously, in a world that understands itself too little, it would be foolish. You've said that you strive with your writing to offer a clear glass through which a culture can shine. Can you unpack that idea a little bit for us? Well, it's a very presumptuous idea. Um, I think I've spoken of it more as a kind of exercise myself, um, usually in relation to traveling alone. Um, I've always wanted to travel alone and not with somebody else in my own culture. If you're doing that, um, you're re-establishing your own world together. You're looking at your bubble of Englishness and saying, oh, isn't you know, isn't it peculiar what they're doing over there? And look at those funny people. If you're alone, you're the funny one in the landscape. And I think you're more um, you're more propelled into understanding and, and to losing your own um, centrality if if you are alone. And I like to think of myself as leaving my own culture behind. Of course, you can't do it, um, but I like to to imagine I can try and that you are, um, you're not getting in the way of the culture that's coming into you and that you're later expressing in writing. It, it's a futile endeavor, of course. Um, your culture's all over you, you can't escape it. But that in a way is one of the strengths, I think, of travel writing, that it is a first person narrative. Um, you are the I in this, and so you're up for the reader's judgment in a way that is much more obvious than say for an academic writing, an academic article or historian, because you are there um, in, your, in your, your, your narrative. And it, um, it's not that you might write about yourself, um, particularly in uh, any, any very direct terms, but the way you write, um, your personality comes through um, shining through um, often disastrously, and uh, and it, it is in that case, in those cases, it can be quite a, a humbling narrative. How do you think your written style has evolved over your career? I was reading some of the the critical commentary that was saying that they viewed your prose now as kind of leaner and more muscular than when you were starting out when you wrote in a in a more adorned style. Do you think that's fair? And if so, has it been conscious? It's probably fair. I'm always accused of overwriting. And little by little, I think I've been harder on myself um, in, in, in the correcting of, of this. Um, uh, it seems to me with many writers that your imagination, um, which is so sort of vivid and overwhelming when you're young, um, maybe becomes a bit sparer. Um, you become more judgmental. Your critical faculties seem to stay the same. Um, but that other element that is more apt to overwrite uh, may decrease naturally. I don't know. In my case, I think I 
I, I've had good um, editors, uh, not necessarily in the publishing world, but um, in friends, really. My wife in particular is a Shakespearean scholar and is a, a fierce critic, which helps. And so uh, I can't quite tell whether naturally my styles change very much. It must have done, but I don't like reading my past books. Um, I, I virtually never do, so I haven't been very enlightened or thought much about how it might have changed. In terms of style or the countries that the books are set in, are there any young travel writers working today that you particularly admire? Interesting question. I, it sounds rather odd, but I don't read many travel books. Um, uh, I, I used to. I used to read my contemporaries and those older, like um, Lee Fermer and Stark. Um, there surely would be if I read better, um, and there are a number that I enjoy reading. Uh, there's nobody who is particularly influential, um, which may be just because I'm old. What do you think of the whole question of, of veracity um, and kind of license, artistic license in, in travel writing? I mean, again, there's particularly say with, a, with someone like Chatwin, there are questions now about in Patagonia about how much it was it was fictionalized, and I saw in. Um, in one of you, saying that you don't um, make recordings of, of your discussions because you feel it, it affects the dynamic, but you, you do write dialogue um, in fr from notes. I mean, where do you think the line runs in terms of what is acceptable and, and what is not in terms of veracity in this sort of work? It's a very wobbly line, um, dividing the two. For myself, I, I think um, there are travel writers who are... Um, quite uh, sort of obvious from their method uh, that, that they are not being, um, uh, Rory McLean comes to mind, for instance. Um, and uh, these, uh, such a writer has perfect integrity because it's obvious that, um, say in a book like Stalin's Nose, his first, that this is not literal truth. I think, um, I think a reader and, and one's average reader um, wishes and thinks that what you write is true. And I'm perhaps rather old-fashioned about this because I think you should try to make it true. You may alter certain things, um, you know, where something occurs in a narrative, um, certain things that don't really seem to um, matter in the least as regards truth, although I have to be careful even there. But um, to my mind, uh, you know, there's a sort of a rather precious idea I think among some travelers that it doesn't matter um, if they make things up, provided it's more or less in the spirit of the country as they imagine it. But I, I think that's, a, to my mind, it's still a betrayal of readers' trust. And um, in conversation, of course, um, in my case, uh, what I write from a conversation I, is not recorded. I find if I have a tape recorder there, people get inhibited or sometimes grandiose. Um, it's not quite natural, but of course, then it means that the travel, the dialogue is not word for word. Um, it probably is, um, it's generated by certain points in the conversation, which are particularly interesting or poignant to me, perhaps. And so it's those that I write about and try to remember as well as I can how somebody spoke. Um, of course, it's not literally accurate, but usually I hope. Um, it is, it, the truth is there, um, it's not invented. 
I personally would find it very hard to invent around a people like the Russians and Chinese. I still feel I know them too little. Um, I'd be caught out in no time. But I can understand how other writers feel that they know so well the culture that they're describing, um, that they feel safe in, in fabricating. Um, I Perhaps I'm being stodgy, but I, I don't like it. Could we talk now about the other strand of your career, which is in fiction? You've always written novels alongside your travel books. It sounds like it was a sort of t a teenage ambition of yours always to write novels, but when did you make the decision to actually sit down and write one? I wrote one novel before um, writing a travel book at all, or one and a half novels. Fortunately, they weren't published. I didn't want them to be. Um, I found it easier, oddly enough, to write a non-fiction. You had this matrix of facts and what happened and so on um, to, to express. Whereas fiction um, seemed you were on an open boat on a rough sea. I just didn't know in a way where to begin or how I could shape things. Um, if you're writing about a journey, it's immediately shaped by the journey, but fiction is much harder. Um, I'd always wanted to write it in parallel with the travel books. But since the first acceptable book I wrote was on Damascus, I then wrote on the Lebanon and other places in the same sort of area, um, Cyprus. Uh, and when I finally came to write fiction, um, it was in my 30s and was much more, um, well, to begin with, certainly it was much more internal than I would ever think a travel book could be. I, I found that I was almost reacting against travel writing and going back inside myself. And that's where a novel came from. Um, it's hard to say exactly what it feels. I think Robert Frost said sometimes that a poem begins with a bug in the mind. And fiction for me is often like that. I can't quite tell where it precisely comes from. It's not exactly autobiographical. It's not falling in love with the plot. Um, it's not um, being interested in a specific character. It comes from some sort of issue of some kind, I suppose. And my novels have normally come from there. So they're almost reactions against the travel book. And while I've been writing a travel book, which may take four years, um, I, I get, I want to think about where, what, what there is in me in some way, um, in, in a manner that is not, not conducive to travel at all. And after a novel, which may take a couple of years, I'm, I'm sick of myself and want to go and go to China. I was struck by uh, a comment I read that you said that you felt that your fiction and your travel books had a had different audiences, that they were read by different people, um, and that the people who liked your novels didn't weren't drawn to your travel books and vice versa. I was wondering if that still applied. And also just on, on the pragmatics, how have your novels sold compared to your travel books? I think it still applies that the, I mean, I noticed it in literary festivals and so on, um, that, uh, that the audience for a travel book, as opposed to the occasion when I occasionally spoken about novels, is I think rather, the interests are rather different. And again and again, people that have enjoyed the travel books um, have said, we didn't even know you wrote fiction. Um, the fiction is sold um, far less. Um, it's very, I mean, it, it's perfectly 
um, respectable, I suppose, but it's not, uh, it's not like the travel books, which have sold more respectably. Um, it, it's, a, uh, it's a strange um, business alternating between the two, um, because the fiction, those who love my novels, as far as I know, have been quite uninterested in the travel books. Some of my novels have involved travel um, in, in some way or another, uh, but not not it hasn't been central to them. In terms of how you write a novel, is it do you sit down in the same way at your desk as you would if you were writing a travel book, or is your process somehow different? No, it, it's very really much the same. Um, I sit down and write very long hours. Usually, um, you know, in the past, I've written twelve hours a day, which is terribly long, very tiring, intense, and obsessive. Um, but I get very involved and. Um, I suppose a certain kind of painful enthusiasm for the whole business it comes again over. Um, it, it's the same for both. Um, with obviously with the travel books, um, one's constantly having to check up. Um, and a, a novel may have more flow, perhaps, um, if if things are going well. Well, the travel book doesn't quite because it's chopping and changing all the time. It appears to have a unity. But in fact, it's you know, one moment it's a slab of history, then it's a personal encounter, then it's a description of a landscape and so on and so on. So um, quite a lot of it is technically actually trying to knit these together. So it seems like a fairly seamless narrative. Otherwise, it would be too, um, too sporadic. So um, no, I, it, it's the same process which is just boring hard work. It's a rule of the podcast that we always ask about money and how it uh, interfaces with people's writing lives. So be as candid or as guarded as, as, as you're comfortable with. But you, you, you mentioned earlier as well that you were kind of permitted to do this because you had minimal outgoings. But throughout you know, your career since Mirror to Damascus, how have, you, how have you made this work financially? Well, with difficulty is the answer because although I was very lucky in my family background, um, my parents weren't rich. Um, I have alternated um, sometimes uh, the writing work with little bits of journalism. Briefly, I worked for the bookseller, the organ of the book trade for a few days a week. And I suppose my main um, sort of outlet was to work for Time Life Books, not the magazine. Um, and uh, that they had series of books, and one was called The Great Cities. I did one on Jerusalem, another on Istanbul for them. Another was called The Seafarers, and I did The Ancient Greeks on the Sea and The Venetians. And these paid very well, um, particularly if you were writing for the American side of it as opposed to the British side. And they enabled me to, um, to, to write the books I wanted. Right until I was about my late 30s, and then I wrote a book on the Russians um, called Among the Russians, which changed everything financially for me. Um, I was busy at a, a, um, trying to learn Russian in a college. I remember a language college and I was only able to do that because I was writing a, a, a book for time life on the Phoenicians on the sea. And so I was banded between these two things. But then the, the Russian book did well and thereafter I was paid better for writing the books I wanted than for those I didn't. 
We're coming towards the end of our time, so a, a final question from me. Where do you get your ideas from? Partly for your travel books, but also for your novels. Um, you know, one is set in a psychiatric facility, one is set in a house chair. Where do you find inspiration? With the travel books, I usually find that towards the end of a journey, um, some other destination is beginning to suggest itself. And I would hate to have to look at an atlas and, and think, you know, where shall I go next? It would be a, um, a, a sort of uh, too artificial and too pressured. Um, I like to think that there's a destination that says, yes, me, me, um, and that I, it, it's absolutely natural for me to go there. That's the travel books. The novels, um, I wish I could answer why or how um, I move towards a certain subject. I think some of mine have been you might say about distress areas in my own life, um, which are, which you sort of explore or exploit um, in your writing. Uh, it sounds a bit cathartic, but um, you know, an unfortunate love affair, say, or the death of a loved one. Um, these have cropped up in my own fiction, I know. Um, but I can't say quite how I select a subject. It never seems quite like that. I wouldn't be so as to say the subjects select me because they don't. It's a sort of muddle, muddle process in which I find I, ideas washing out of my head before writing fiction and then eventually one will stick like something that doesn't go through the sieve and then that begins to uh, expand with um, some sort of thinking around it and um, there, from there a, a novel may uh, emerge a, a plot that seems to um, express what you're trying to say. But it's much, I have to say, much more elusive than I made it seem. There's been kind of amazement and um, incredulity in some places in, in the coverage of the Amo River, pointing out that you did this highly demanding journey when you were in your in your late 70s and that, you know, you're, you're over 80 now. Um, I saw a rather interesting comment that you sort of felt that if the mind was willing, the, the body could be forced. And I wonder if you could expand on that a little bit. Um, and, and do you have plans for, for further trips? <laughs> well, I, yes, I think before this journey, I was 79, I think, when I undertook it first. I felt that if the enthusiasm was there, the desire, then, you know, it, it, it carries you along. And physically, luckily, I've always been fit enough. And uh, it... it um, it's a matter of the, um, the flesh being weak, perhaps a bit, but um, the spirit being willing. And you, you just can do it because of your fascination or often, in my case, almost obsession with this subject. So it hasn't, that hasn't been a, a problem. Um, and I've forgotten the second part of your question. Uh, do you have plans for more trips? Oh, no, not, not um, as usual. You know, I'm thinking of a novel. Um, which is typical after a long travel book. So that, that's beginning to niggle away a little bit, not, uh, not in a way that I can easily put, a, put words or plot to, but, but something is stirring. And, and the final question that I was interested in is, is you don't have children yourself. Um, do you think that you'd have been able to have, to have had this life and this, this, this amazing voyages that you'd done if, if you'd had a family? Well, I often wonder. I, I don't know what would have happened at, at what stage I would have been married. Um, 
I, I think that would have been a great more difficult for sure, because even when I was earning rather well by writing standards, it had been very hard to bring up, say, two children um, uh, alone or with, with no other financial assistance. So it would have been difficult. I think I would have gone on trying, but my, my output would be very depleted. And I, 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 I just don't know the answer to that. It, if I had married, as I sort of might have done at the age of 24, 25, um, it would have been very hard indeed. And I don't, I think probably I would have ended up in publishing um, for the mere. If I'd married, say, in my mid-30s, that would have been rather different. I'd been more set on my professional journey, and I, I would have been luckier. But in both cases, um, a whole lot harder. As it was, I married extremely late, and uh, it's, uh, it's all fine. I'm sure your readers would agree. Thanks very much, Colin, for speaking to us and wishing you all the best with your forthcoming novel and all of your ventures. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Colin Thubrum. He's not on social media and he doesn't have a website, but his latest book, The Amor River, is published by Chatham and Windows. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Simon, what was your main takeaway from the interview with Colin? It's a fascinating discussion. I mean, I think you know, I don't think he'd mind us saying he's um he's an older gentleman now. And it was sort of fascinating to me to speak to someone who was part of that generation of British travel writers. I know I I uh, inhaled Patrick Lee Fermore as a teenager. And I thought it was um amazing to talk to someone who'd been a kind of contemporary of them. But I think also as he as he explored, I think quite sensitively himself, some of the expectations and discussion about travel writing has changed a lot in the last 20 years. So I thought he gave um he actually kind of pretty, pretty thoughtful response to that. I did worry a little bit about his his personal safety, given his, you know, falling off horses and and things like that. Yeah. Um. What about what about you? Yeah, he seemed to brush that off as if it was no big deal. Um. I thought he was a very gregarious guest. Um. I was glad that you asked about how his work has affected his personal life. I read in one interview that girlfriends in his youth had to just accept that he would be unreachable for long periods of time. Um. So I found it very interesting that his his wife now was on board with that i thought also yeah he was very um thoughtful when we asked about you know would he have been able to do this if he'd had children and stuff like that so so really good to um to discuss that anyway rachel what have you been up to i have been covering for my boss who's away um but the economist has done a summer issue double summer issue for the first time so this is e-week that we're in at the minute which is just digital only content so a bit of a reprieve before covering print and digital next week but um it's not been it's not been too bad how about you i am going off at the end of this week for a bit of time off so i've just been working to clear my desk of various things i got an edit um for a 1843 piece back 
this week and um yeah doing i had to get some stuff done for my accountant and, and other bits and bobs glamorous. I, feel I'm, I know very glamorous but i feel i'm uh going away with a, a reasonably clear slate which is good anyway this has been always take notes hosted by me simon akam and me rachel lloyd our producer and social media editor is artemis irvin our score is by jess danheiser and our graphic design is by james edgar if you'd like to follow us on social media we're on twitter at take notes always on instagram at always take notes if you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via our website or leave a review on iTunes, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.